Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Coaches on the Couch. I'm Louise. And I'm Rachel. And today we're welcoming Timo Hedrich, Scott Grady and Geraldine Mollier from Haptic Architects. So welcome the three of you. Hello Hi, Louise. Hello Rachel. Nice Hi everyone. Hi. Um, before we get into anything else, of course, we have to chat couches. So please tell us something interesting about your couch. Geraldine, we'll come to you first. Uh, yes, well, my my couch, my sofa is... is... As a very, actually, it's not very much a story, but more uh, the fact that my sofa is a long chair, long chairs, how you say, chaise long? Chaise long, actually. In, 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 oh, we've had one of those before. <laughs> and it's very, very comfortable, actually. I've never had one before. And I have to say, during the COVID, it was uh, very nice to cozy up in my chaise long. <laughs> and uh, yes, that's my story. Lovely. Thank you. Scott. Yeah, I was going to speak about my very nice mid-century Guy Rogers sofa bed, but I've, I've just um, taken a new Habitat green velvet sofa, I was just saying to the guys. And uh, the first morning we had it, my youngest uh, got super glue on there. So you can imagine the, uh, the frustration in the house. We'll do what we can to rectify that, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I suppose on the upside, he didn't get it onto the mid-century. Yeah, yeah, no, she is. She, she, she didn't get it onto the mid-century. No, but yeah. that's been um, taken over by the dogs in the last few years, anyway. So <laughs> we're not doing too well. <laughs> and Timo, we had our sofa for about fifty years or more. Um, it's been a wedding present, um, and uh, for my parents and my grandma actually, and the very dear. A piece of furniture. It uh, arrived in our first flat by a crane, and um, so a 20-ton crane that viaduct organized and then lifted 50 meters high into a third-floor uh, flat. So, um, yeah, quite a unhealth and safety compliant delivery, but um, quite dramatic. And I've got some good pictures to prove it as well. Well, we might have to see those. So we've got a chaise lounge, a Habitat modern classic and a mid-century modern. Don't know which one we're going to see a photograph of. And the family heirloom. So thank you very much. Uh, okay, so a quick introduction. Your practice name, Haptic, referring to the sense of touch, is a guiding force for your design work. And that works really wide-ranging, including major infrastructure projects such as Delhi Noida Airport in collaboration with Grimshaw and Nordic. Uh, HS2 Euston Terminus, again with Grimshaw, and Oslo Government Headquarters with Nordic. Apartments at White City Television Centre for Stanhope, all the way through to a London showroom for Vivance UK. And I see from your website that you've also recently been appointed to design the new Norwegian embassy in Beijing. Congratulations, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And Timo and Scott, you founded the practice in 2009 with your co-directors, uh, Thomas Stocker and Nikki Butenschen, and you now have a team of 55 based in London and Oslo. Uh, Geraldine, you joined in autumn 2018, and you have the title Head of Employee Experience, which is one of the many reasons we invited Haptic onto the virtual couch today. Indeed. So Coaches on the Couch originally launched during lockdown um, and was there to explore the leadership issues arising through the pandemic. And clearly we've moved on to broader things. But one of the issues that's come into focus is organisational culture and how that's maintained when people are in the office less. So, Geraldine, maybe we could start with you and your remit 
and the backstory for your role as Head of Employee Experience at Haptic. Yes, uh, well, uh, as you said, uh, I joined uh, Haptic Architects in October 2018 as a studio manager. And three years later, October 2021, I was appointed Head of Employee Experience. And between these two dates, uh, a lot of things happened. Yes. Uh, in between, uh, we had a small pandemic and uh, also uh, Haptic uh, doubled uh, its size. So when we started the first lockdown and I was still the studio manager, um, in one week, my role pretty much stopped because I was, uh, my role heavily relies on the office space. Yeah. So um, I was, of course, still part of the team, but so it's where I started to reflect uh, about my role. And um, also uh, through the weeks, originally we really thought that we would have stayed three weeks in lockdown, but as, as we all know, we stayed much, much longer. And we started very organically to organize socials because we were all stuck in our houses. I organized, for example, the um, baby face uh, Wednesday aperitive where all the staff had to give a face uh, when they were babies uh, and we had to guess who was who uh, but more ser seriously also when we won the NOIDA project despite the fact that we we had to stay online for these socials I think this was very well received and after two years uh, we still carry on doing this it's, it's been very positive during the pandemic uh, the sector experienced a lot of movement. People were leaving a lot. The companies, uh, changing companies. Yes. And actually, I think we experienced, uh, we were close to zero, actually, employees. Uh, That's good news. That's really interesting. News. I mean, maybe because people are now transitioning back to the office, and before we started recording, you were saying, uh, you were saying, Scott and Timo, that you're, it's so great to see loads of people back in the office. I think it's interesting to think how that role of employee engagement continues now that you need a studio manager as well, and there's an office space to be managed how do you see that role developing in the future yeah I just I just want to sort of add to what Geraldine said because in the last year or so we've we've had in some ways more time to reflect on where we want to go for the next 10 years and and part of that was the setting the direction which is there's a kind of mission around this about creating places that make people happy. And it comes from our sort of Scandinavian roots and the fact that we have two Norwegian directors. And we're really interested in place making that is equi equitable, inclusive, healthy. And that really has to start with the team. And Geraldine is the kind of, we think of Geraldine as the glue that holds the two offices together. So what it revealed in the pandemic is that the, we had to bring the offices even closer together. We had to have resource meetings collectively, production meetings together, acquisitions, etc. Studio cult culture really came to the foreground. And I think Geraldine's role, at, you know, in, in, in the way she is developing, that just felt like a really timely kind of moment. Mm. Um, so I think that then carries forward into the kind of physical space that we are you know, back to, and then what we might do next. And, and I think the growth is a really interesting part of that. You know, we think we actually need more space per, per head going forward because we need Zoom spaces, we need kind of um, social space, 
you know, we need to create a reason for people to come back to the office. So, yeah, that's what we were interested in because we've had previous guests, haven't we, Rach, who have made that point that the office needs to be a more attractive space that people want to want to be in. I think the, the studio space is more important now than it was before because, yes, the haptic family, as we call it, is, is needs to live somewhere. You know, we, we, uh, we can work from home, but we still need to have a space where we can, can come together a space where we can come together and enjoy working together. It's interesting, Timo, that you say that working together, because I think during the pandemic, there was a real focus on the social side of things, as in, as if culture suddenly became all about bringing people together on Zoom to socialise somehow. And that other bit of how you work together as being part of culture, I think is really interesting, particularly now there'll be an element of all working together in a studio, there'll be an element of hybrid, and there'll presumably still be an element of everybody being online. I mean, how do you see that evolving? Yeah, you mentioned uh, that the, the, the we met um, originally, Thomas Scott and, and, and me at, uh, at uni in a studio space, which was probably five square meters uh, uh, big. And uh, we still like that uh, space because we could work in it creatively and uh, come up with ideas and then that sort of studio atmosphere we wanted to carry along into our practice and then um, with developing an, an Oslo or adding an Oslo office and, and growing over the years, that, that studio atmosphere was important to us and maintaining that sort of creator spontaneity. Spontaneity. Okay. <laughs> it's been so long, we've forgotten how to say it. Crikey. <laughs> Timo's completely right. You know, it was the, it's the intensity that you as an architect when you're sort of training university days you you really experience this sort of kind of the height of intensity let's say and we wanted to bring you know we miss that in zoom days and and it and, and it's also the kind of process of osmosis in a way that the younger generation they kind of learn things in the office environment that you just cannot pick up on zoom so yeah. That's why the, the younger generation really were itchy and scratchy to get back. So this is something that I've thought about quite a lot, because partly because I have been a coach tutor for apprentices, PR apprentices, and the last cohort that I worked with had never been into their office. And of course, we now have a whole cohort of, of architectural students who will have completed a three-year degree without having experienced that five-metre you know, mm. that space that you were talking about and the spontaneity and the close. And I'm wondering how that affects not just their professional development, but when they come into the workplace, presumably there will be differences in the way that they socialise and interact and work together and work and relate to people who are um, more knowledgeable than them. And all those kind of skills of socialisation that we all got at university that they have very sadly missed out on. And I just wondered if you've got any observations on that or whether you've encountered that at all at the moment, or is that one for the future still? I was probably also during the lockdown and after actually, I was sometimes at the office because it's just around the corner from where I live. And so some days I was completely on my own. <laughs> and then when we are closer to now, we welcome a lot of new part one and part two. And at that time, uh, we were still very much, the majority of the senior architects were at home and I was with the new ones. And it's very interesting how 
I, I could witness the energy they had together. But I knew I was not part of it because uh, I'm not the same age, but uh, I'm not an architect also. But um, I, I was really, really looking forward to, to, for them to meet the senior architect that I knew before uh, the pandemic, because I could clearly see there was an, an, a new dynamic starting within the practice. And somehow now we are all back together this week. So it's as uh, recently as, as this week. And it's very, very nice to see uh, finally uh, the young ones meeting properly, the ones that they met through Zoom. And I think suddenly you see the people, the senior ones, uh, giving some uh, tips and, um, you know, uh, giving advice. And uh, there is a real connection here that is very nice to see again. I mean, Ger Geraldine uh, recounted a story just the other day of, you know, the, the team went down to just have a, um, a drink on the corner here. We have a pub downstairs, which is pretty handy for us. And there was a nice moment, I think, Geraldine, where, you know, some of the senior architects were talking to the, uh, the, the younger ones that were just about to you know, start their part three, you know, about those steps and those kind of simple things you, I think we lost during the last few years. The sort of side conversations. There's all those yeah. side conversations, absolutely critical to the business. This kind yeah. of um, brotherhood. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and also I, I deeply believe that important chats can happen around the coffee at 2 p.m. around the coffee machine. And also, as a French person, uh, we love food, and a lot of uh, issues are resolved around the meal. So it's not only about being at the office but or, and undertaking our tasks, but also what's happening in between our just looking at each other. You know, it's, it's a lot of communication mm. that we can pass mm. without mentioning any word. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Also, uh, just to add to that, I guess, as a practice, we have been teaching over the years and we have been teaching um, on a new course at UCL over the last three years. You started it um, with Thomas, then Agnieszka, a colleague of ours, and I taught last year and we keep on teaching this year. And it was really uh, bizarre sometimes, uh, you know, talking to students over in Hong Kong at a different time scale. Uh, but, you know, uh, Somehow we all managed, and I felt very sorry uh, for the students. Uh, I met my wife at university. We uh, had a really uh, fantastic time as students, so they, they missed out on a lot of things, I think. But um, I'm sure they make up uh, for it in the long run. And uh, as, as you were uh, explaining, Geraldine, I think we we acutely aware because of the lack that we have to, how, how valuable that, that interaction and, and that sort of seemingly unimportant as it actually is. So, um, yeah, it's been a very reassuring uh, time, really, I think, because we yeah. noticed so much uh, that, we, we, that is actually important. Absolutely. One of the other things we were keen to talk to you about today is collaboration. You know, when I went through your work and introduced the, it's really, you're obviously collaborating a lot with, particularly with larger practices, but not all larger and I know that was kind of part of how you started out on the practice. Collaboration is one of those things that people say they do really well, but nobody ever really sort of breaks down what that is. What does it take from you as leaders of a practice to actually do that well? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll start, but I think, as you say, 
collaboration's been within the haptic DNA from the very first few months of the practice. We were getting stuck into aviation work in the first six months, believe it or not. And I think that's quite a unusual approach for a, a startup architecture yeah. practice. You know, quite simply, I think you have to look at it as a true partnership. You have to kind of go in without ego and our our basis with any partner, and it doesn't matter how big or small they are, is that we're going in on an equal footing, which means equal resource, effort, fees, everything, because we feel that we've got a lot to add to any any partnership. And that's that's held its own throughout the years. And I think many practices now think that way in collaboration. If you speak to architects as we do everyone has that kind of same narrative and and if they don't then they're probably not like a good partner for us so does that mean open open book then you say fees as well that means that everybody is very open with everyone yeah I mean it has to be completely transparent and fair and you know you know this you you have to um really trust your team so it's your collaboration is effectively an extension of your team and the haptic team is all about trust and you know really understanding each other so and we have to be you know vulnerable with each other we have to sort of recognize where um we have our strengths but we also have weaknesses and where you can learn from others and i think Mm. that's the most interesting part for us i think that there's a there's a real trajectory and growth that comes out of the collaboration but also coming right back to uh the growth from uh, uni days and we always work together we've worked together in the same studio, but uh, we sometimes uh, work on projects together. And I think it's a sort of uh, no building ever uh, is born um, from a single mind or single hand. It's always a collaborative process, as we know. But um, the, the design side of things, I think it's particularly interesting. We, uh, back in my personal school days at uni, I always thought I learned equally amounts from my fellow students than from the tutors. And, um, you know, I don't want to be ungrateful, obviously, um, it probably wasn't just that, but looking at what you put up on the wall, Scott, in, in the Bartlett, or what, what Thomas or other students put up on the wall was equally helpful to, to what, you, what you do when you just talk to someone about the, the process. So yeah. I think we're really keen on, on continuing that yeah. process as well. I mean, I think collaboration has hit a new height now. I mean, we're, we're sort of doing uber collaboration now with multiple partners. I, I mean, last year I did a, a collaborative effort on the Thamesmead bid for Lendlease and Peabody. Oh, yeah. And I was leading it with Annalie Riches of Mikhail Riches. There were 17 architects, architectural practices involved. I mean, it, it was a bit challenging to say the least. But I was going to say, what were the challenges and how did you overcome them? Well, I think, you know, the communication channels is the biggest challenge and how do you organize organize the team you know who does what how do they how do you get them to successfully contribute and what we were trying to do with that particular bid is basically say well there's one approach to master planning which is everyone understands what that approach is Uh, we want to really design a kind of process here that is completely unique and will therefore achieve Lendlease Peabody's goals in a very different way it's a whole different kind of rationale to placemaking. I won't unpick it further for you, but I think each of the architects had a sort of role to play, which was about expertise. For example, Dinah, 
uh, Borna, who is an expert in um, uh, ch uh, child, you know, play space, ch um, ch child friendly design. Her role was to kind of feed into the kind of master plan vision process on that basis. Right. And I think it's a really interesting idea that actually what you do most of the time is you curate a team of experts. It's, it's about the best ideas, the best people, because it's a highly competitive uh, world we're living in, of course. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you have to do anything with your team at Haptic to equip them to work in such a collaborative way? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to work on their mindset. They, they buy into the kind of haptic ethos that collaboration is a good thing for the practice. That's first and foremost. Mm -hmm. you, you, you mentioned creation, which is a sort of probably, probably questionable term when it comes to people management. But then there's a sort of, uh, we, we, we employ people that, have, that we see by their previous work, by they put all you that buy into that process. So it's, it's more like we re rely on the strength that's already there and build right. up on that. So it's, it's, I would call it sort of a soft uh, management. Rather soft than, yeah. and, and also what I could add on, on the collaboration side, um, being heavily involved also in the recruitment and induction process. But myself, when I started actually four years ago almost, I was amazed, uh, for me, Haptic was all, all about collaboration and that was almost a synonymous for me. And I, I was uh, um, very pleased that I, could, I was able to speak to my directors and to part one, to part two, to senior architects in such a, a easy way. Um, and as a studio manager, as a non-architect, uh, so more as a business support team, but we were, I mean, we still kind of equal. Somehow we, we can mm. talk easily uh, to each other. And I think that's a very uh, big strength to Haptic. And when I, I organize uh, the inductions, it's something that I, um, I emphasize uh, very much uh, on, on the new new people and, and something that uh, we want to, to carry on through the entire employee's cycle life, you know, from, from the recruitment, induction, learning and development, and even, even the exits when someone is leaving, it's always, it's very important to live in good term. And this person may be a collaborator in another practice within the next few years. So uh, again, uh, it's, it's, it's this aspect of collaboration. It's, it's, it's linked also about happiness. It's, it's about being together as, as a group. <laughs> Does that also owe something to the the Nordic influence? Quite interested, obviously, in the in the cultural the impact of those cultural differences. I mean, lack of ego or loss of ego or suppression of ego is not something that one automatically associates with architecture or indeed creativity or design or, or artistic endeavor. Uh, and I'm. Uh, and it's a small three-letter word, but it, it uh, has quite an impact, that word, doesn't it? And I just wonder whether the Nordic influence yeah. um, impacts on that at all and Haptic's ability to foster that collaborative. I, I think definitely, Louise. When we first went to Norway, Timo and I, in a professional sense, you know, I sat down in a kickoff meeting for one of the jobs and it really struck me how different it was to working in... Uh, a U UK environment is sort mm -hmm. of 
everyone was basically working as one. You know, it was a team effort. It's slightly changed, but, you know, the UK at the time was a bit more hostile. Or that's what I was used to. And everyone was sort of protecting themselves, which doesn't create an environment for kind of the best ideas and the best architecture, of course. Mm. So it, it really just changed my entire perspective. You know, that's, that's the beauty, I think, of, you know, us getting together that we had really quite different perspectives and, and experiences to, de- to, the, to date. And then we were working in the UK and Norway so we could kind of cross fertilize and see those different cultures. And we really drew on um, kind of lessons learned from Scandinavia, I suppose, in that approach. Mm. Fascinating. I think ego has a bad uh, reputation because it is about the person, but if it's about the, the subject matter, the project that you do, then it's fine. You have to be obsessive about what you do. And I think that's what the, that's when the best work happens. And in, in, in Norway, they are very uh, focused on delivering a technically sophisticated building for obvious reasons, because it needs to be um, weather and, 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 and approved and, and, and uh, you know, it has, it has to perform well because it's uh, a very different climate out there. Uh, and then the design obviously is woven into the process, but it, it's a sort of, yeah, the, the, the dedication to the, to the project um, is, is, I think, more important than the, the ego. And therefore, we, we just try to work with people who uh, believe into the same sort of ethos. And, and actually, uh, to jump on what Scott was saying about vulnerability, ego has got a, a bad reputation, but vulnerability has its own bad reputation. And vulnerability, I mean, for me, uh, it, it's, a, it's a massive strength because if, if, if someone is very open, uh, within the practice about his strength and weaknesses. Uh, somehow we, we unlock the connections, we unlock creativity and performance. And, and you, you know, it's, it's, and again, collaboration. If I know that I'm not very good at one thing, I know someone else might help me and vice versa. So, um, yes, um, I, everything is linked, vulnerability, mm-hmm. collaboration and ego. <laughs> Well, we love we love the concept of strength and vulnerability, particularly in leadership. I love that discussion about the ego and putting the project first and the ego being slightly suppressed in favour of the project. I mean, it sounds like Nirvana, and I'm sure that there are nevertheless some sticky moments that need to be dealt with. Um, yeah, for sure. Last, last question, maybe. How do you deal with... Um, conflict or difficult we get we get asked a lot as coaches about managing difficult conversations how do you approach difficult conversations or conflict <laughs> well we, we got uh, some advice very early on that we should have a, a meeting every monday to this to air anything that we any problems we might have uh, i think we've done it once uh, <laughs> on, that, on that regular basis but um we um consider i mean and this is purely talking about uh, the 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 direct leadership, I guess, that we, um, we have known each other for a long time, we have friends and as well as business partners. So um, it's uh, sort of that help probably um, through the tougher times that every business goes through. Um, but, you know, I think uh, without wanting to lay in the point, we, we uh, want to bring as many people into uh, the fold and, and make haptic, uh, a, a haptic family. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's a sort of, um, yeah, it's, if there are problems, they can be aired. And as you mentioned, Geraldine, 
uh, I think in the last couple of years, that's been uh, particularly uh, obvious that um, if, if there are problems, they can be discussed. And mm. it's nice to do that in person. We have a lot of social elements to our office and uh, that, that helps dealing with problems and meeting and talking. Um, coming together in one space, the office, um, I think is a great place for that to happen. If you're just on Zoom, if you're just um, on the screen, you, you don't read all the, the, the finer nuances of uh, human activity and interactivity. I mean, go to, just to go back to the happiness point, I think, um, it starts with the haptic family. And if someone's not happy or if there's conflict, it has to be brought to the fore. It, it, it goes right to the top of the pile in terms of priority. And therefore, we have to sort it out. And then that is, needs to be communicated in a very transparent way. Um, and we, we just have to work our way through it. I mean, I think there's, that's the only way of dealing with it. Because what we can't have is a sort of culture where people are talking about other people behind their backs. And, you know, we've, we've um, experienced that in, in previous lives, I think. And we're very wary that that can't permeate the business. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. absolutely, and I think also uh, we we it's, it was a learning curve for us. Uh, we started with surveys, and Geraldine's uh, role obviously is so important in that that you you have a system in place, you have a person also that deals with it, and, and luckily Geraldine is doing an amazing job in it. Uh, but yeah, it's a sort of it's a learning curve. You start with something, you see what works, you see what doesn't work. It's it's a it's definitely a journey. It's, we don't have the answers. Uh, Yes, but are we interested in finding them? Well, we'll have to revisit in 12 months after this is sort of played out a, a little. And I think that just coming back around the loop, back to happiness there, Scott, is maybe a nice place to just draw the conversation to a close. So thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to see you actually sitting all in the same space. I feel really jealous that Louise and I... Yeah, I know. So I do too, actually. Yeah, for the first time in... in... <laughs> Yeah, for the first time in a little while, actually, a kind of reminder of how lovely it is to be in a, the same space as like-minded people working for a common endeavour. That's a nice feeling, and uh, yeah. we haven't had that for a little while, although we do do workshops in person now, which is uh, a huge relief. Yeah. yeah. It was great, great chatting to you both. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Speak soon. Bye. See you.